Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. I actually grew up in public radio. I've been in the field since I was 16. And from the start, I was taught to offer people content that will inform and enlighten. This podcast is dedicated to spreading ideas that speak to the highest part of our listeners rather than lowest common denominator. If you like what you hear, we're asking for your help. Please leave us a kind review on iTunes so others can find us. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston. This special documentary project is supported by the Compassionate Care Initiative at the University of Virginia School of Nursing and by the Humankind Program Fund. I used to think that people shouldn't look into my eyes because they could see the suffering I've seen. Um, and I used to be afraid of making eye contact with certain people. How healthcare professionals learn to process the personal tragedies they are sometimes called to witness. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Jonathan Bartles, a registered nurse specializing in trauma and emergency care in Charlottesville, Virginia, has treated many people who suddenly find themselves in a personal calamity. An accident that occurs in a split second can set off a cascade of medical procedures intended to rescue the victim. The patient is vulnerable, right? You come in, we put you in a gown, we strip you, and and often a trauma will cut your clothes off. You know, and now you are as vulnerable as the day you were born. Hospital professionals are rigorously trained in the protocols of care for emergency patients at high risk, but the doctors and nurses also bring their humanity to the clinic each day. I think for me, I learn how close we all are to being in that bed, how close we all are to being a trauma patient. As a motorcycle driver, I know that. <laughs> but have you, have you treated patients from motorcycle accidents? I have, I have, yeah. And, and scraped uh, what we call road rash, uh, which is uh, you know, the embedded parts of the, uh, the, the throughway that are stuck in their legs out and scraped them and all that yucky stuff. But they're helping me because I could be them in a heartbeat. I could wake up today and be in that bed and be in their situation. And if I, if, if I can, then I, I need to treat them the way I want to be treated. Bartles now serves as a palliative care nurse liaison at the University of Virginia, a funder of this series. He previously studied Jesuit and Buddhist contemplative practices as well as psychology. It has helped to prepare him for the occupational stress of repeated exposure to suffering in a busy hospital setting. At times, it can be exhausting. So are there days when you have to consciously reach really deep to find the compassion to then give? Definitely, definitely. 
You know, there, there are points where there's trauma after trauma after trauma that keep coming in. Every time you look up, it's like someone hits you with a two by four, you know, and it's a new trauma coming in. Um, and you've got to just adjust, adapt, and move. So that gets exhausting after a while, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Um, there are cases that come in the door. I remember a, a lady who came in very ill, but not cared for by her family, um, and lived in a trailer park and lived in, in a trailer home. And she was um, rotting from the inside out, and her family let her lie in her own defecant, in her own urine. And she was just pitiful, man, and I can still see her. Um, and just digging deep enough because the odor was overwhelming um, to have to go beyond that and see deeply that this is a human inside this. doesn't even look like a human anymore, but they're in there and they need us. And I remember this nurse and I helped clean her up and it took us an hour and a half. But once we were done, um, you know, we felt good about it. But, you know, we also just had that, it, it was, it was, it's a memory she will never forget and I will never forget. For you, is there a spiritual dimension to the process of digging extra deeply so as to find another layer of compassion? Sure. So while we're working and when we're doing our work, I often describe the ER as a hell realm. And I describe working in a hospital as a hell realm. Um, but hell can be, you know, and that's, that's a Buddhist term. But even in Christianity, hell can be on earth. And to try to relieve suffering for people when they're in that situation, um, that's the spiritual dimension of the care, is, is stepping into that world and not turning away, not running away. It's sort of like running into a burning building. Um, like the firemen do, um, but we run into the burning buildings of people's lives. Um, and that if we can offer them a little bit of hope or a little bit of help, it makes it helps them heal and it makes a difference, even if I can't take your illness away. So what is the source that you turn to for that additional reservoir of compassion? I think the source is, is my own knowledge that, you know, the Dalai Lama says, you know, everyone wants to be happy and no one wants to suffer. No one wants to be angry. No one wants to be in pain. And I don't want any of those things. And so if I don't want any of those things, approaching patients the way I would want to be approached in that situation is, is the driving force of that. It, it, it's, it's, it's a humanism uh, that drives the work I do. And that humanism, you know, that, that goes beyond any religion. It goes beyond any, any sectarian system. Um, it's, it's the fact that, that I do not want to suffer, you do not want to suffer. Let us help each other. When someone faces a serious injury or illness or disability, the disruption to our normal routine may be unwanted, 
But lying in a hospital bed does afford a person time to step back and to contemplate. It can lead patients to ponder deep questions of meaning we might otherwise be too busy for. What is my life about? How do I cope with suffering? What would death mean? Nurses who devote more time in direct care of patients than doctors may be on hand at such delicate moments. Paulette Mignon is an oncology nurse and nurse educator at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. She's treated many patients confronting a life-threatening illness. Even patients that say that they're not religious or spiritual, frequently you see when that something that devastating, that type of news is given to them, uh, they begin, begin to question um, their eventuality. They begin to question uh, the meaning of this whole existence. And um, again, they want someone to listen to them. And on in the oncology service, we also, uh, it's a, a multidisciplinary team. So we have chaplains uh within our service, uh, social workers. So if uh, it's someone that needs uh, spiritual or religious guidance, we contact uh, the chaplaincy service and they make sure that they uh, arrange for the appropriate person. In your experience nursing directly at the bedside with patients, can you remember an instance where a patient was facing one of those deep spiritual questions it was a patient I uh, was caring for, not that he was an atheist, but he said that he didn't really believe in God. And uh, unfortunately, his course had taken a decline. And so he was given a short period to live. He said uh, one night, I worked nights during that time, and um, I was in his room and he said, um, uh, what do you think happened to people after they die? And I said, I'm not sure. He said, what is your belief? And I said, "Um, I believe that um, if you uh, believe in God, that you are remembered, and he always keep you in his memory, and uh, he will uh, look after you. And he said, "Um, what do you think happened to people that don't believe in God? I said, well, whether you believe in him or not, he believe in you. So I imagine the same thing would apply. What was that like for you as the nurse to have supported a person in uh, a moment like that? Somewhat heart-wrenching, actually, because when someone asks you something like that, it's just not a casual question. It really is pain behind that question and fear behind that question, and it doesn't come out as if they're speaking an everyday uh, sentence, a question, you can actually feel the, the pain coming from that person and the fear that that's going to be it for them, no return, nothing. It's not always that you give someone an ABC answer and they're fine and that's fine with them. They believe everything you say. It's still fears and doubts there. Nurses often absorb these poignant encounters with patients they're caring for. Treating the whole person can be very rich in meaning. But health care providers also need a way to work through and release the complicated emotions of attending to people who are ill. A lot of times we, the nurses, when we're in the report room together, we talk about it, we support each other, uh, 
sometimes even cry on each other's shoulder, especially if it's a quite difficult case and everyone is um, has taken care of this person and uh, have experienced some of the same things, not uh, the patient never achieving a comfort level that is um, desirable for that particular patient, or you see that the patient is enduring uh, things, even though they're not complaining, they're suffering in silence. So often we will support each other. Nurse Jonathan Bartle sometimes strikes this bell at the University of Virginia Medical Center in Charlottesville. It can be heard throughout the emergency room. He announces that everyone, staff, patients, family members, are being invited into a brief meditative moment of mindfulness in the trauma bay. It breaks the intensity of high-pressure medical care. And among staff, he has introduced a formal practice called the pause. It's usually after an untoward event, but it can also be after an expected event. I've done it in the MICU, in the medical ICU, um, after we terminally extubated a patient, meaning removed life support from them. Um, and what we do is we simply, you know, ask everyone in the room to stay. You know, if we could just take a moment to stop and pause and recognize this person in the bed before they came into the hospital and before they became sick, before they were injured, they were a person that was loved and loved other people. They were a person that had a life and in this moment that we're going to take, if we could just in our own way and in silence stand and honor them and honor all the work that we did to try to help them and just do this in silence and in our own way. And is that healing to the caregivers who have just lost a patient? I'll tell you this. Um, the pediatric ICU just lost seven kids this week. Wow. Uh, their nurses are injured and hurt. And I heard today that they started to implement the pause, and it, it helped them. They said it, 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 it's, a, it's a small way. It's not a magic wand, um, but it's, it's one way to put that aside and honor it. And if there's one thing that's universal, it's a recognition that some kind of ritual to mark the passing of somebody, we call it a funeral in the West, is an essential human need. And it's only a minute. You know, it could be longer. Um, but I think in silence we capture everyone's voice. And in silence, we participate with what the family is going through. Because that pause and that silence, for them, life stops. And we're also giving ourselves that space to give ourselves, you know, the neuronal shift to kind of, you know, readjust so that we can then step back and keep on doing. Exploring the challenges of remaining genuinely caring in today's medical environment. 
You're listening to a Humankind special, Compassionate Nurses. I'm David Freudberg. If you'd like to obtain an audio copy of this program and learn more about the compassionate care of patients and to hear our documentary on resilience for nurses, please visit humanmedia.org. Medical treatment is often viewed in terms of prescription drugs and surgical procedures and high-tech testing. But the heart of treating patients, and the reason most nurses enter their profession, is the human act of caring, of health care. And to perform that effectively requires attentiveness, being truly present for the patient in need. John McCransky, a theologian at Boston College and author of Awakening Through Love, has trained healthcare providers. Compassion, he says, comes naturally to many people, but is also a skill to be developed. Unless we care enough about the patient, we wouldn't want to be that deeply present to the patient. So we also need to cultivate a power of care. And that, I think, is especially empowered by experiencing our own moments when we were ourselves the object of care, experience ourselves as seen somehow, as worth appreciating or taking joy in, and from there beginning to sense others similarly as deeply worthy of attention and care, worth appreciating, that there's more to them than just my impression, oh, this is just my patient or whatever. There's a a deep mystery there. There's a much fuller human being there. And to settle, come back again and again to settling into that deep mystery Honoring that human mystery is key to the art of healthcare, even if it falls outside the traditional realm of medical science, which of course is also essential to competent treatment. This holistic approach views the patient as more than an assemblage of body parts, but as a full person endowed with mind and spirit. In Albuquerque, Physician Lisa Marr, a professor of internal medicine at the University of New Mexico, says that seeing the patient in this light can actually diminish emotional fatigue experienced by healthcare providers. I am then in this in this beautiful dance with somebody, responding and reacting, and I think that that decreases exhaustion because I can then get physically tired, which I do. But the emotional piece, if I'm responding through the day to these to people and what they need and trying to be kind and, and compassionate in, in those interactions, I don't think you am, I, I don't get as emotionally tired as I used to. Can it in fact be energizing? Oh yeah, absolutely because then you're seeing everything that's happening and unfolding. you're trying to now I'm, I'm putting this as a this is what I aspire to. I'm not saying I'm always successful, but it's like this dance then that's unfolding. And, you know, I sometimes see in healthcare where people will go, oh, you know, it's a patient with this. Oh, it's another this, you know. And it's like, they're, and I know what they're going to say, and they know what I'm going to say. And it's like, no, you don't. You know, you this is new. That's a new, unique person there. So it kind of stops that, that um kind of prejudging, it gets you then right in the moment. And that is an energizing process for me. You got 100 people with pancreatic cancer, and they have the same exact CAT scans, right? The same. 
but how each unique person is dealing with that illness and their family and how they're coping, that's going to be different from patient to patient to patient. And that is, that's what I'm so curious about. And I'm fascinated by that. And I learn a lot from patients. Um, so that's that sort of being there and interacting without trying to put my stamp on it. It's every, everyone is unique. I think very important, especially for healthcare providers, is a way to be with our own feelings. John McCransky, Boston College theologian. When we're with others who are going through suffering, that can trigger also difficult feelings in us. Often in um, professional tr schools of training, we may be told to maintain a distance. Don't get overly immersed in your own feelings. And that can be interpreted, and it has been by many nurses and doctors I talk to, as basically we need to suppress our feelings. Try not to feel them very much. Try to put them out of conscious awareness. Just be present to the patient. But the problem is that that can begin to affect our own health. That can also contribute to our own tendencies toward burnout, because we're pushing down our own feelings and even to addictive behaviors in healthcare givers to just try to get away from our feelings. And this is a common dilemma for health professionals who strive to care deeply for their patients. The root meaning of compassion is to suffer with the other person. But they also need to maintain their own equilibrium and not get overwhelmed and consumed in the patient's distress. So what's a different way to be with our feelings? Well, we're with a patient who's suffering and we experience some empathy for that and we have some feelings of suffering and empathy with the patient. What are we to do with those feelings? And this also can be uh, uh, training. We can learn how to be present to our feelings with a sense of deep acceptance and warmth and compassion for those feelings. Aware is not suppressing the feelings, not trying to distance ourselves from our feelings. But at the same time, we're not identified with the feelings. We're not caught up in them because we're aware of them with a sense of warmth, acceptance, and compassion for them. Kind of like if it's a troubled feeling, being with a troubled friend. Not, we don't have to be, to be the troubled friend. We're being, we're with the troubled friend. Compassion. With, with a sense of, come, yeah, compassion, with a sense of deep acceptance and warmth and listening to our troubled friend. That's the way to be a friend or troubled. Similarly, with our own troubled feelings, very much like that being with them with a sense of warmth, acceptance, compassion for those very feelings, aware of them with that warmth, then we're not identified with them. We're not caught in them because we're present to them with care. I always feel like I would never treat another person the way I sometimes beat myself up. Right, right, right. However, to the degree that we do beat ourselves up, we do wind up treating other people that way more than we may be conscious of. Because it's still in the system. It's in the system. We're caught up in it, and we're projecting it outward, and we're misinterpreting others according to how we're caught up within ourselves, and we're beating ourselves up and, and then lash out at others uh, because we're so unhappy. Like when you're feeling sad or grief-stricken, or what about when you're feeling angry? What about when you're feeling frustrated? Can you be aware of that feeling with a sense of deep acceptance?
The way nurses and doctors cope with their own feelings can directly impinge on their interactions with patients. Emotional burnout can lead to a gradual decrease in compassion, despite a provider's good intentions. And it can be physically draining. Dr. Lisa Marr wrote about this in her essay, Can Compassion Fatigue? It's sort of this vicarious trauma uh, in that, like, almost akin to a PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. In other words, I am caring for people who are severely suffering and in difficult times, and that translates to me suffering. So, uh, or, or I suffer because I'm, I'm like faced over and over again with the, as a friend of mine talked about, the gaping jaws of unmet need. It's sort of this sense like everything, there's so much to do and I'm not able uh, to do it. And so to me, when I thought about that term, it depends on how you're defining compassion. And, and maybe it's sort of a shift in the mind and the way of thinking about it. You know, compassion fatigue, the term to me, it sounds like, you know, I've got this limited well of compassion that I dole out, and that's, that's all I can give. But if we think of it more as relational, meaning I am there, I'm going to listen to you, I'm going to be present, I'm going to try to help, that's compassion. You know, that's the relationship that, that evolves in that situation, and that is compassionate. And so I don't think people are or aren't compassionate. I think it's, I, I think sometimes we think it's something beyond what we're doing, but we have to understand that in those moments, that is compassion. One of the things you've written, forgetting the self for those moments, listening intently and responding as best we can, we, we let the world unfold for us rather than think it is we who must unfold the world. Energy is saved, burnout lessens, we are dancing with the other in that moment, involved in a relationship with infinite potential, not a puppeteer who must command each step of the dance. It's actually kind of a, a concept that I, as I was reading some um, Dogen, uh, who's a, the founder of Sotas and Buddhism, this idea that you have to kind of get your own ego out of the way and forget your little self. And um, by doing that, you're um, basically then, rather than look at me, look at me, or me, 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 like you're more into this complex web of what's happening and responding to what's around you. And this may involve a healthy degree of what Dr. Lisa Marr calls detachment. This is not being uncaring or losing interest, which can cause a nurse or doctor to close their heart, to go on autopilot or shut down on a difficult day. But it's acknowledging that even with best efforts, we can't always control the outcome, that larger forces may be at work. It doesn't mean like, oh gosh, all my patients had horrific pain and we didn't control it. Like, I don't mean not attachment to that outcome. But I want to always sort of highlight that we are a tiny piece of what is happening with that patient and family. And there are things in place, causes and, and, and situations that we can't change all the time. So to show up, do your good job, be present, do good clinical care, um, show compassion, have compassion for this situation and for your colleagues. Like you can't ultimately control everything, you know, and I think it's that idea like I have to fix everything, which is can lead to burnout because you're not. 
you know, if you've got a person who is, you know, with horrible social situation or, or, or you know, the, all the disparities in, in health related to poverty and you can't ultimately fix that. So what can I do? You know, what is something I can do for those people? And I do think it's this idea like I have to fix everything. That's a that's putting you on the on the path to burnout in a sense. Like I have to control and fix everything because we can't. Dr. Lisa Marr, professor of internal medicine at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, and Mark Kilstein. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to KUNM Albuquerque, Emily Richardson Lorente, and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe at iTunes to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio. This segment, part two of Compassionate Nurses, is Humankind program number 241. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.